So almost every Sunday here at Trinity, one of the things that we do is we have a statement of faith where we confess to ourselves, to one another, what we believe, primarily the God that we uh, praise and worship believe in. We use one of the creeds. Uh, the Christian church is used, usually it's the Apostles or Nicene Creed, today the Apostles' Creed. And you'll notice that in those creeds, there's three paragraphs. There's not two. There's not four. There's not seven. Three. One paragraph dedicated to each person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And sometimes I feel bad for the Holy Spirit. And here's why. If someone asked you to explain what each of the members of the Trinity do, I think it would usually go along like, okay, well, the Father kind of created everything, watches over us, and the Son, he's kind of the main character of the Bible. He he redeemed us, he lived for us, he died for us, he rose for us. Every, we are everything only because of him. And the Holy Spirit's, yeah. Like sometimes we pray, Father, protect me, Son, forgive me, and Holy Spirit, you do you. <laughs> you do that thing that you do, Holy Spirit. You keep doing it well, you know, that important thing that I'm supposed to... Ah, I feel so bad for the Holy Spirit sometimes. Sometimes I think it's, uh, maybe it's kind of like this. Um, I'm going to get crucified later. Okay, this is not meant to be an analogy to explain the Trinity. Just go with me. Sometimes I think it's like a three-man band metaphor. Okay, you ready, Adam? I know, he's going to hate this. So, okay, it's like, you know, you got the drums, you've got the, the lead singer, vocalist, guitarist, and then you got the bass player. And it's like the father is over on the drums and, you know, sometimes the drummer gets the solo, but the drummer is, like, there to keep everybody else in line, keep the beat going, keep things going. And then you got the sun, and all the spotlight is on him 95% of the time, the, the vocals and the, the guitar, wow, he's so good. And then there's the Holy Spirit on bass. And no offense to Pastor Taliano or any other bass players, but, like, to the average person, Nobody's like, yeah, that bass player, ah. To the average person, you probably couldn't name a bass player. Now, I know, you music nerds, you guys are going to kill me later, but sometimes that's how I feel it is with the Holy Spirit. You know, we, we so forget him, we so misunderstand his work. And that's why I love a day like Pentecost, a day that we get to celebrate sometimes in the year to really put the spotlight on the Holy Spirit, his work, but also who he is and what what he does. Because we need that Holy Spirit. We need that Holy Spirit so badly for everything that he does. And in fact, Jesus says that in a certain sense, you need the Holy Spirit more than you need me physically around in your life. Now, let me explain that in the context. He's talking with his disciples the night before he was crucified. He's talking to him, kind of highlighting all of his ministry, the reason why he came. I've come to be your substitute. I've, I've come to live in your place. I'm going to die soon. I'm going to rise again. Your sins are going to be gone. My mission will be complete. There's so much of that the disciples didn't understand. And then he says, after I come back to life, I'm not going to be with you guys anymore. Like for a little while, but I'm not going to be walking and talking with you guys like we've been doing for the past three years. And understandably so, you can 
see why the disciples would be filled with grief. They're upset. You mean, Jesus, you're going away from us, their friend, their Lord, their Savior, right? It, it makes sense that they're filled with grief, but Jesus says, you think this is the worst thing that could happen. Actually, it's the best thing that could happen. And somebody told his disciples that night. He said, very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now, the advocate, we talked a couple weeks ago, the Holy Spirit, another name for the Holy Spirit and what he does. Jesus says, it's the best thing that can happen because I will send the Holy Spirit to you and you need that spirit more than a band needs a bass player. You need that Holy Spirit. If you want a stronger faith to cling to in times of hardship and trouble, if you if you want to be a bolder witness of your faith, to which I hope everyone would say amen to that, if you want the love of Christ to spill over into your life, into the lives of other people, you need the Holy Spirit because he is the one who takes us from being just a, a person, a regular, a normal life, whatever you want to say, and transforms us to living not of the world, but as a child of God, a follower of God, letting that light shine, that scripture says. But I guess the question that everybody asks is how? How does the Spirit do? What exactly is it that the Spirit does? You say he's so valuable, so instrumental. What exactly, how would you talk, describe what the Spirit does? And I guess if you took all of the passages from scripture about what the Spirit does, you were to summarize all of them up. Maybe it's a little overly simplistic, but you could say the Spirit's primary work is conversion. So he takes a person from life to death, or excuse me, death to life, spiritual death to spiritual life. That's what the Spirit does. But then after you've been converted, he continues to convert you. Now, I don't mean that you keep going in and out of faith. That's not what I'm talking about. He gives you life, and then he keeps working on your life. Because when a person becomes a Christian, when a person who's been a Christian for a long time... Everybody, you would all admittedly confess that there's still areas of your life that need some work, that need more aligning with God. It's not like when a person becomes a Christian, overnight, snap of the finger, every area of their life is totally aligned with God's will. No. It's a, it's a lifelong process that the Spirit works on us through the Word to align our hearts, to convert those areas of like our time, all, all of these different areas of our life to align with God's. And so then people say, well, how does the Spirit do that? How exactly does he go about that? Jesus answers that in verse 8. When he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And that is not an all-inclusive list, of course, of everything that the Spirit does, but suffice to say, that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I know when you look at this convicting us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, could you come up with a more churchy outline for a sermon, Pastor? Like, I'm afraid that this is going to be a lecture-type message, and I'm just going to, my eyes are going to glaze over, and I'm going to learn a lot of stuff, but it's not going to be practical. Don't worry. Stop. Let me stop you there. I pray that what we learn today we see how actually this churchy-sounding stuff is actually highly practical and completely relevant to the problems that you have in your life, to the issue that you have. 
into bringing you more and more into alignment with God, and you can see that his plan and will for you is always the best, and that you would agree, yeah, it, it totally is. I pray that you don't just learn more about who the Spirit is, what he does, but I pray that he works through the word, through this message, to give you a greater faith, to give you a greater love and appreciation for who he is so you can give him glory and praise outside of these walls. But this is the outline we're going to start with, so let's start with point one, you might say. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. That seems harsh. Convicts me of sin? I don't want to be convicted of sin. That seems mean. I thought the Spirit's supposed to be a good guy. What are we, what are we talking about here? Why would he convict us of sin? Well, the Spirit does want to heal you. The Spirit wants you to be well. But before you can be well and good with God, you have to be made aware of the evil and the sin that is present in your life. And I don't know if you know this or anyone's ever told you this before, but um, you're a little stubborn. Aren't you glad you came to church today to be insulted by pastor, right? Oh, you're a little stubborn. And has anyone told you that before? Don't look at the person next to you, okay? You're not supposed to do that. This is, I'm not talking about the way that maybe family and friends would say that. I'm talking about the way Scripture says it. Every single person, Scripture says, that comes into the world is by nature hostile to God, hard-hearted and hard-headed to his will. We want to be autonomous. We want to be the ones who call the shots for ourselves. We're stubborn. And it's so true. Because what happens when someone comes to you and confronts you with something that you did that hurt them, that wronged them? You sinned by doing or not doing something. You wronged someone by doing or not doing something. What what is your instinctive reaction? Whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, what is your reaction? I guarantee you, 99.9% of the time, our reaction is not to say, oh, you're absolutely right. I have No, our reaction is to what? Justify it. Excuse it. Rationalize the behavior. And we have been this way ever since we were little kids. Does this scene sound familiar to you? Or could you, could you imagine this scene? You got a brother and you got a sister. And they're playing and everything's great until it isn't. All of a sudden you look down and there they are and they're slugging fists at one another. They're tackling each other, fighting. And mom and dad come on the scene. They separate them. Whoa, time out. What in the world is going on? They get control of the situation. They say, what are you doing? And the sister says, well, he started it. He hit me first. Because that excuses your behavior to suddenly then punch him back and retaliate. And then the brother says, well, well, she was being mean. She wasn't sharing the toy. So that excuses you to go ahead and, and, and hit her and, and that justifies that? Now, what would any parent do in that situation? You wouldn't just tell them that what they were doing was wrong. You would say, your excuses, your justifications of your actions do not justify your behavior. Just because he hit you does not mean you get to hit him back. Just because she wasn't sharing does not mean you get to tackle her like a linebacker, right? That's not what that means. And then we think as we get older, we become so much more mature. 
We grow up, we leave those childish ways behind, and yet I know I'm only 33 years old, but I feel the more I observe people and myself, the more I realize we don't actually really leave our childish ways behind. We just become more eloquent in our excuses. We become way more sophisticated in our justifications. Don't believe me? A pastor, I know we're not married, but well, everyone's doing this and we're being financially responsible living this way. And I know I'm not really giving anything to God, but I'm being a good steward of what he's given me because I don't really have much anyways. And I'm trying to save up. And I know I'm a workaholic and I neglect my family and I neglect my kids and I work way too much, but it's because I'm trying to provide for them. And I know I got wasted that time, but we were celebrating. It was the 21st birthday. It's okay. And I know I'm a little impatient and a little angry, but that's just my personality. That's just the way I am. That's how God hired me. And I know that the Bible says that our, those in authority, like the president, like the state governor, are representatives of God's authority. But like, you know, if they would just act a little more respectable, if they would just align their agenda more with my opinion and my agenda, then maybe I would respect them a little more and not slander them as much. And, you know, I... I will forgive them. I will let go of this grudge. I will let go of this bitterness and hatred that I have for them when they come and apologize to me for the hurt that they've done. And it's not, it's not really cheating on the assignment. We, we work together as a class on this already. We're just kind of sharing notes. I still think we've grown past those childish ways. You're so stubborn. And so what happens when you confront someone with something that they've done wrong and they give you this excuse, they give you this justification? Do you just say, oh, okay then. I guess you're good to go. No, <laughs> right? You, you have to reason with them. You have to reason the truth into their justification, into their excuses. A mom or dad would not sit there and say, oh, he hit you first. Oh, well, then by all means, hit him. I hear, you know, I'll hold his hands behind his back so you can get a good... No! You wouldn't say, oh, she wasn't sharing? Well, then by all means, go tackle her all day long. Of course not. You reason with them that that doesn't make the behavior good. You go to someone and say, I hear your excuses, but look at your behavior. It's not lining up with God's will for your life. Stop it. You have to reason into their stubbornness. Now, why in the world would you do that? Because you're a jerk? Because you're holier than thou. You're better than them. Is that why you're doing it? Of course not. It's because you love them. Because you want what's best for them. You would never get mad at a doctor if you said, hey doc, I've got all of these problems going on in my life. Here's my symptoms. Uh, it's really messing up. And then a week later he says, well the tests, the labs are in. You have cancer. You would never say, how dare you tell me that? Who do you think you are to tell me that I have cancer? He would say, well, thank you for that horrible, awful news. 
so that now you can get a treatment going to get better. You would never get mad at a surgeon who says, well, we're going to have to leave you with a sizable scar after we take a saw, cut open your sternum, rip open your chest cavity, and you're going to have a whole lot of pain and discomfort for the next month or two if it would mean giving you open-heart surgery and saving your life. Sometimes, in order to heal you, there has to be hurt that comes first. And that's what God wants for you. Jesus wants to heal you. But he can only heal those people who confess their need for healing in the first place. And how does he convince people to do that? The Holy Spirit, who works through the Word, who works through someone using the Word to convict person, people of their sin. But the great thing is, it's not all that the Holy Spirit does. As you could say, point two in our outline, the Holy Spirit convicts us of righteousness. Now there's a churchy word, righteousness. What in the world does righteousness mean? When I talk about righteousness, I simply say righteousness means to be right with God. If you like uh, metaphors, if it helps you solidify this image in your head, think of it like a resume. A resume is something you give to an employer that says, here's why you should hire me. Here's all my qualifications. Here's why you should accept me. A resume says, here's who I am. Here's why you should accept me. Now let me ask you, how would you fill out your resume? How would you answer that question, who am I and why should I be accepted? Now, as you think about that, I want to tell you a story of a guy who hated this idea of, of righteousness. He despised it. He couldn't stand it. Maybe you've heard of him before. His name was Martin Luther, arguably one of the most uh, influential people in all of history. Martin Luther at this point in time in his life, he was a seminary professor. He was teaching people the Word of God. And he despised this idea of righteousness. Why? Because if it is to be right with God, then he saw righteousness as something that he had to slave away in order to make himself good with God, in order to, to validate himself to God. Now, don't misunderstand Luther. He understood that his sins were forgiven better than almost everybody else. But it's like he missed the second part of the gospel. Okay, God has taken away my sins, and now I have to make my own righteousness. Now I have to prove myself to him. Now I have to validate myself to him to make it up, to say, here's why you should accept me now that my sins are gone. And it drove him to so much striving in his studies, in his morality, trying to be better than everybody else, trying to be more obedient than all of the other monks in his monastery. He was so so convicted of his own sin that this idea drove him to hate God. He literally hated God. He says so in his own writings. Why? Because he saw him as this ogreish brute that there's no way he could ever make himself right with God until the Holy Spirit convicted him of righteousness. Luther was reading the book of Romans probably for the umpteenth time and he comes across this awesome passage says, for in the gospel, Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by 
faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And he says about this passage, it was like the gates of heaven were opened up. Because suddenly he said, a righteousness as by faith? That is not dependent on me, but on what Christ did for me, that not only did he remove my sins, but he gave me his life. That's why I'm good with God. And suddenly he could rest. He could stop striving. It was like this weight was lifted off of his shoulders and he could say, I'm I'm accepted to God for no other reason than Christ alone. Pastor, what does this have to do with me? Well, everything. Some of you are living like Martin Luther at this period of time in his life, and maybe you don't even realize it. I asked you before, how would you answer that question? Who am I? Why should I be accepted? How would you fill out that resume? And some might answer that in terms of your achievements, your successes, your accomplishments, your career. Others might answer that in terms of your relationships. You know, the people you know, the influences that you have. I'm a popular person. I'm a trustworthy friend. I'm a boss. I'm an employee. I'm a hardworking employee. I've accomplished X, Y, and Z over my life. I know these people. I'm, I'm, some of you know that your sins are forgiven, and yet you're waking up every single day looking in the mirror with this immense pressure hanging over your head saying, how am I going to validate myself to the world today? How am I going to make sure my friends continue to like me? How am I going to prove myself to my boss today that I am something? It makes me think of so many women who obsess about themselves in the, in the mirror, their looks, their makeup, because, because they have to be accepted by the opposite gender, and I gotta be, I gotta look good enough for them to like me. I think of so many, so many men who think I have to accomplish something with my life and people who are striving and feel absolutely worthless because they've done nothing and they feel like they're worthless. There's all this striving, there's all this working. And this is why we need the Spirit. To convict us of true righteousness that says, you know the best thing you will ever be is a redeemed child of God, washed in his blood. And the best thing that you will ever do was done to you some 2,000 years ago on a cross when Jesus didn't just take away your sins, but he gave you his life and says, who am I? I'm a child of God. Why should God accept me? Why should I be accepted? Because of Christ alone and everything he did for me. Stop working. Stop striving. Stop obsessing over what the next person thinks of you. Stop looking at every new person that you see as an audition to get them to like you. And understand the only opinion that matters, God's opinion, 
He loves you because of Christ. It's yours by faith. And we need the Holy Spirit to remind us of that again and again and again. Which brings us to the last thing that the Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of judgment. Now, this one's a little bit of a head-scratcher, I think, on the surface. Jesus says in John 16, 11, he says, and about judgment, because the prince of the world now stands condemned. What? <laughs> like, I feel like that's the common question we've had as we're going through the Gospel of John. What? <laughs> what are you saying, Jesus? What are you saying, John? Stay with me on this. The Greek word that we translate judgment has another translation that means rule or ruling, like in other words, the Holy Spirit is trying to convict the world, bring people underneath God's rule, God's ruling, which helps us understand why he brings up the prince of this world, a.k.a. Satan and his condemned state. Satan was the first ever being who rebelled against God and said, God, I don't want you. I don't want to fall under your rule. I want to call the shots. I want to rule my own life. And God said, here you go. I'll give you a place. It's called hell. And it's a place that's apart from my grace. It's a place that's apart from my love. But it's also a place that you can rule yourself. And anyone who wants to rule their own lives, go ahead and join them. But a person who is convicted of their sin, a person who's convicted of righteousness, true righteousness, will be someone who says, of course I want to align my life with God's rule. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is the Holy Spirit, what he does, is he convicts us to realize that my life is not my own. It's God's. That every day, through the word, he is constantly converting these other areas of our lives to align with him to fall under God's will, not mine. Let me give you some examples. Your time. Does God care what you do with your time? Absolutely he does. Why? Because you're not your own. You've been bought. You've been purchased. You've been won. You belong to him. So he says, I very much care what you do with your time. I want you to not serve yourself with your time. I want you to meet my needs. I want you to meet my people's needs. I want you to serve me and others. So does that mean that God cares what you do with, oh, I don't know, spending time to worship with fellow believers? Absolutely. That it's not an optional thing. Same is true with finances. Your stuff that God has given you. Does God care what you do with your money? Contrary to popular belief, yeah, he, he does. He says, I've given you this to serve me, to serve my kingdom. So if you were to examine the last 30 days of everything that you've done with your gifts, with everything that God has given you, would it be falling under his rule or your rule? Do you use it primarily to serve him or yourself? The same is true for words. The words that you say when you're with friends, with family, the words that you post online, does God care what you do, use, what you say with your words? Of course he does. But time out. Don't I have a First Amendment right to say whatever I want to say and have my own opinion? 
not as a Christian you don't. Because you don't belong to yourself. You belong to God. And he says, I don't want you to use your words to cut and to hurt and to slander and to bully and to insult and to gossip. And you know what I want you to use your words for? To encourage, to love, to build up, to compliment, to work on caring about my kingdom. And we could talk about marriage, the way you view those who've wronged you, your neighbors, your kids, your parents, your teachers, and on and on and on. Every area of your life, the Spirit is constantly at work to try to show you through sermons, through God's Word, through people who share the Word with you, that you are not your own. That you don't get to call the shots. You don't get to rule your life. He's trying to show you that that in order to find your life, the life that God wants for you, the life you're meant to live, you have to lose yourself and lose your life to him. And I know I've been talking for a while, but do you see why we need the Spirit? Some of you may be saying, and this is hard, like to give up control in this area of my life, it's, it's, it's a struggle. Do you understand that's the Spirit moving in you? Do you understand that that's the struggle where the Spirit is trying to work on you? Don't resist Him. And maybe some of you for the first time are realizing you're absolutely right. I have exhausted myself. I have been just absolutely killing myself, trying to prove myself to other people, and you're convicted by it. That's the Spirit. And that's a good thing. He's not trying to hurt you. He's trying to heal you. And he's trying to, to bring you closer to a God to show you that not only does he love you by sending his son to, to die for you, to be your life for you, to be your validation for you, but he sends you a spirit to remind you of that again and again and again and continuously work in your life to align you with him. Yield to the spirit. Submit to the spirit as he works in your life, especially when it's uncomfortable because he wants what's best for you. And he's working to heal you and give you the life that God wants you to have. So confess and repent, but don't forget to rest. Rest in a Savior who's already forgiven all of the stubbornness, who's already forgiven all the hard-heartedness, who's already forgiven all those sins, And yield to that spirit as he works to remind you of that love. To allow you to live not a life for yourself, but for a God who wants what's best for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so many of us would say that that you being here physically sitting with us in the pews right now could be the, the best thing that could happen, that we could talk with you face to face, that we could shake your hand, high five you. It would be awesome. But, but you tell us through what you told your disciples that actually it's better that you're not. Not in that way. Because you sent us a spirit who lives inside of us. Lord, use that spirit through your word, through your sacraments, to cut through our stubbornness so that we would be humbled 
but that we would see that, that your spirit is the best thing that we could have so that we could align our hearts, our lives, all of these areas with you and your word and your truth so that we could live more like you, so we could follow you, and so we could let our light shine to everyone else. Lord, continue to humble us and continue to give us this spirit. May we, may we continue to pray for him in our lives, to keep working, keep active in our lives so that you would continue to align us with you and so that we could give you praise and glory in all that we do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.